Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning. How many are happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Can you say amen? amen? As most of you know, we're in the midst of a series that's called Overflow. Oh, it's the series for the month. I'm going to call an audible this morning. If I can get this hooked on here, I'll be fine. I'm going to call an audible this morning, and I'm not going to preach on the Overflow series. We're going to resume it next weekend, and we're going to finish it up. Don't worry. Uh, we'll finish that up. But today, uh, I felt it expedient in the spirit, and the staff felt the same way, and the elders and trustees of our house felt the same way, that it is expedient in the spirit to address uh, what is happening in the world, specifically what's happening in Haiti and what's happening in Afghanistan, and to talk about how we as a church should perceive these yeah, things yeah. and how we as a church should respond yeah. to these things. I want to make a statement, and then I'm going to read a verse of Scripture, and then we're going to pray, and uh, we're going to move on in. And the statement is this. The world only knows of Jesus what it sees in the church. Wow. I'm going to say that again. The world only knows of Jesus what it sees of him in the church. And right now, the world knows very little of Jesus. The world only knows of Jesus what it sees of him in the church. And right now, the world knows very little of Jesus. Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I thank you today that your word is from everlasting to everlasting, that heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. Open the eyes of the hearts of your people this morning, I pray that we might clearly see and hear your heart and your voice, and that we might respond with faith and obedience. I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. amen and amen and amen. Exodus 3, the passage that I just read, has to do with the people of Israel who were in bondage in Egypt. Moses had escaped the bondage of Egypt. He had gotten out. Moses had escaped from the time of his birth. There was a genocide, and Moses was protected from that gen genocide. He had gotten out. You know that his parents put him in a little boat, a little raft, and set him out on the river. And he was rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh. And he was raised in the household of Pharaoh. He had escaped the plight of the rest of his people. He had gotten out. But at a certain point, the, the book of Hebrews tells us that Moses became of age. And when he became of age, when he came to a place of maturity, Moses disidentified from his privilege. Yeah and re-identified with the plight of his people. Yeah. That is, up until that time when he became of age, yeah, yeah. he identified with his privilege and did not identify with the plight of his people. Yeah. He didn't look at the Israelites and say, those are my people. Yeah. He looked at his privilege and said, this is my privilege. Yeah. But that was the sign of his immaturity. Yeah. But when he became of age... Yeah. When he came to a place of maturity, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer shame with the people of God 
than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. But what happens when he seeks to identify with the plight of his people is that he's rejected by the very people that he seeks to identify with. They said, you're not one of us, so don't try to be one of us. And then he's rejected by the Egyptians from whom he had just disidentified. They said, you're not one of us. And so he runs from his, for his life out into the wilderness of Midian. And for 40 years, he's sheltered in the wilderness. Wow. He finds a new privilege huh. where he's no longer subjected to danger from the Egyptians or the rejection of the Hebrews. He finds a new life out there. He finds a new family out there. He finds a new vocation out there. He has children, and now he's a father and a husband, and he's an uncle, and he's a brother, and he's a son. He's got this whole family system around him, and they've got money, and they've got supplies, and he's, his whole life is laid out for him. He says, I found my people now. He's no longer hurting for the plight of his people. That identification moment was just that, a moment. A moment in which he said, I feel for my people. But now that moment is over. I tried to feel for my people, but it didn't work. That is, Moses hit a place of disempowerment in which he felt like I wanted to help, but there was nothing I could do. I wanted to participate, but there was nothing I could do. I felt their pain for a moment, and I tried to participate, but I failed. There was nothing I can do. And so once again, he disidentifies. He withdraws. It's like he got out of the projects. Now he's found a new life. And God disrupts this new life, disrupts this sheltered place that he's found himself in. All kinds of trouble is happening all over the world, but Moses is looking at it as an outsider. Man, that's messed up what's happening in that country over there. Yeah. Wow, that was crazy what happened in that country over there. Yeah. Israelites still slaves? Yep, man, that's messed up. Yeah. But he's still an outsider. Yeah. He's an observer yeah. and even a sympathizer. Yeah. Do you know the difference between sympathy and empathy? Is sympathy is, I feel bad for you. Empathy is, I feel bad with you. Yeah. Empathy means, I feel your pain as if it's my pain. Yeah. Sympathy means, it's, it's your pain and not my pain. Yeah. And I'm sorry that you got pain, but that ain't my problem. Yeah. Although sympathy is much nicer than that. We don't say it that way, yeah. but that is the brunt. Yeah. Yeah. Moses has become a sympathizer. He's no longer an empathizer. Until God disrupts his sheltered life. Yeah. And what does God say? I have seen. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen the plight of my people. Yeah. Did you hear God? My people. Yeah. God is identifying with the suffering of his people. God says, they're my people. I have seen their pain. And then he says, I've heard their cries because of their taskmasters. I'm listening to them. Meaning, I'm aware of what's going on over there. I'm intricately aware of what's going on. Meaning, when God says, I've heard their cries, he's speaking literally. Yeah. He's not speaking of a collective cry. He said, no, no, no. Every individual who has cried out in agony, I've heard every cry. Every, I'm, 
I am intricately aware. And then he says, for I know their sorrows. When God says, I know, he is not speaking of an intellectual knowledge. God does not use know the way the Greeks used the word knowledge or to know. To know from the Greek philosophical standpoint means to isolate yourself from something and to observe it. But the Hebrew conception of knowledge is completely different. Adam knew Eve and she conceived. He did not isolate from her and observe her. He engaged her intimately. When God says he knows something, he means I've intimately engaged in this. When God says I know their sorrows, what he means is I am so intimate with their sorrows, I feel their sorrows as if they are my own sorrows. And in fact, because these are my people, their sorrows are my sorrows. They can't have sorrow without me sorrowing because these are my people. And then God says, and because I've seen, I've heard, and I know, I have come. Do you hear that? You see that? This is who God is. This is not an event. This is his identity. I am. When he tells Moses at the end of that engagement, I am. When they ask who I am, tell them, I am. I am, what does that mean? I am who? I am the God who sees the plight of my people. I am the God who hears the cries of my people. I am the God who knows their sorrows, and I am the God who has come to rescue them. I'm not aloof in the heavens just watching. I'm not aloof in the heavens just reading it on Facebook going, man, that's messed up. That's not who I am. They're my people which means they're my family. When God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what God means is I've adopted Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into my family. They're my family. They're my kin. You see, what God is preaching to Moses there at the burning bush is what I've come to know as the gospel of kin. The gospel of kin. What we have come to preach in America is the gospel of sin. The gospel of sin. But what God preaches to Moses is the gospel of kin. The gospel of sin is part of Scripture, but it must be contextualized. Because what God does not do is come to Moses at the burning bush and point out all the sins of the people of Israel. He doesn't come to the burning bush and say, you see those rebellious people over there in Egypt? It's their own fault that they're in bondage. Let me tell you why. Because they're fornicators over there. They got homosexuals over there. They got robbers and stealers and thieves. They kill each other and they're murderers. And even you, Moses, you just tried to help and they just threw you out of there and said, who are you? You ain't one of us. Who put you in charge? Who made you our ruler? You see how they do, Moses? That's how they did me too. Go tell them rebellious, stiff-necked people to repent of their sin, and then maybe I'll get them out of here. That's not what God says. Although he would have had every right to do so. God preaches the gospel of kin before the gospel of sin. 
He goes to Moses and says, these are my people. These are my kin. I hear their cries. I care about them. I love them. I've come down to rescue them. Moses, go get them. Go tell them that I am the Lord and that I'm going to bring them out of the house of bondage and carry them on my own wings. I'm going to lift them up on eagles' wings. You tell them, Moses, that I will scorch the earth to get them out of their predicament. That's how much I love them. That's how much I feel for them. Moses, go tell my people. And then you get up in Pharaoh's face and say, the Lord says, you better let my people go or else I'm about to come down here and act a fool up in this piece. And then after delivering them, after bringing them out, then he says, now we got to talk about your sins. You shall have no other gods before me. Y'all got to stop it. All that idolatry stuff, y'all got to stop it. Shall not bow down to them, not worship them. I, the Lord your God, are a jealous God. Stop using my name in vain. Got to stop that junk. Mm Got to remember the Sabbath day, keep that junk holy. (laughs) Stop dishonoring your mom and your dad. Stop committing adultery. Cut all that junk out. After he got done preaching the gospel of kin, then he brings in the gospel of sin. This is a clear progression that flows right out of the heart of God. This is the heart of Scripture. He does not start with your sins. He starts by telling you that he's your kin. And it's only after you embrace him as kin that he deals with your sin. Did you hear me? And what do we do in America? There's homosexuals out there and there's robbers and thieves out there and there's thugs and burglars out there and the world is full of corruption. All we do is preach the gospel of sin. And we have forgotten that the world only knows of Jesus what it sees in the church. And right now, the world doesn't know very much about the Jesus who is not ashamed to call us his brothers. You see, we talk so much about Jesus as Lord and Jesus as Savior, and that He is, my friends. But do you know that Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 and 11 says that He's not ashamed to call us His brothers and His sisters? Meaning, He comes to us as kin. When He comes to us as kin, He comes to address our pain and our sorrows. Do you realize what the incarnation of Jesus was all about? It's just the natural progression of the modus operandi that God revealed at the burning bush. He says, I'm the God who sees, hears, knows their sorrows, and so I come down. Do you realize that the penultimate expression of God seeing, hearing, and knowing our sorrows and coming down was in the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Do you know what the incarnation, do you know why he had to be born? As a human being, literally, he says, let me show you how close I am to you. Let me show you how much I love you. Let me show you how deeply I am connected to your pain. Let me show you how much I know your sorrows. Let me show you the depth of my my empathy with you. I'll show you. I'm going to be born into your family. I mean, there is no deeper empathy and intimacy than God saying, I'm going to be born as a member of your family. 
Can you imagine if God came to you and was born into your literal family? That's what the incarnation of Jesus was. God becoming one of your relatives. God became one of your relatives. And why? You see, every family has familial pain. You know what I'm talking about? The kind of pain that you can talk about if you get enough of your family members in the room? Every family has familial pain. And sometimes the source of that pain is external, what was done to you as a family and how it marked you. If you get my dad's side of the family in the room, somebody at some point will start talking about how my grandparents lost their home that my grandfather had worked as a milkman to buy in the Oakland Hills, and the impact that that had on my, my family, how it plunged my family into virtual poverty for decades. Yeah. There's pain that comes out of that situation, and there's familial pain. And you know what? I grew up understanding that pain. Why? Because I was born into this family. Yeah. The birth of Jesus Christ as a human being was the means by which God obtained direct and experiential knowledge of the historic pain of the human race. I know your, your pain, fam. I know your pain, fam, because you're my family, because we're kin. I'm not a sympathizer with your pain. I'm an empathizer with your pain. I've been there, dog. I've been there. I felt it with you. I carried it with you. I mean, all the way from the the most traumatic event. You know what the most traumatic event of the human life is? Is being born. You better thank God you don't remember it. I watched a documentary about what, what babies go through to be born. It's crazy. Yeah. It's amazing they survive it. Yeah. <laughs> it's the most traumatic, and it's a miracle that they survive it. Yeah. What happens in their heart, I mean, it's crazy. And the, the lungs, you know why they get pressed out of the birth canal? Because all of that ambiotic fluid gets pushed out of their lungs. Uh. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's not, he, he went through all of that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The one who created, through him all things were made. Yeah. Without him, nothing was made that was made. And now he's in a birth canal being pushed out and and amniotic fluid is being pushed out of his lungs. Just like y'all. Just like me. Everything you went through, everything from diarrhea. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Like all the stuff that we go through. He's like, yeah, oh yeah, I've been there. We're, We're fam. That's what this incarnation is all about. That's why I'm here. That's why I was born. Listen, he was born so that he could suffer with you. That was the purpose of the birth of Christ, so that he could suffer. He was born for suffering. It was the only way for it was a statement. God was making a statement. I could tell you that I feel your pain or I can be born into your pain and feel and just experience it all with you. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Thank you, Lord. 
and the penultimate expression of the kinship of God was the cross. Wow. Yep. Because every single one of us has to face death. And Jesus says, I'm not only going to embrace the experience of death, but in the worst possible way. Wow. At the hands of Roman executioners yeah. who have spent years training yeah. to provide you with the most excruciating and long-lasting death wow. that they possibly can. Wow. And when we watch the passion of the Christ. Yeah. And we see depictions of that crucifixion. We feel for Jesus. Wow. Yeah. How he was tortured. Wow. And you missed the point. Wow. He was feeling for you. Wow. Yes. 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 It was his way of saying to every human being who would ever live, I feel you. Wow. I feel you. The cross was the gospel of kin. Wow. He was preaching the gospel of kin from the cross. Yeah. Because on the cross, the pain and the torment and the suffering of every human being who has ever lived was laid upon him, and he absorbed the full impact of that. Wow. We talk so much about him bearing the punishment for our sin, and we focus on those legal huh. aspects of the cross, yeah. where the cross was this heavenly court, this forensic e event, yeah. where Jesus stands and shows the Father the nail prints in his hands and feet, and then the Father declares us justified or not guilty of the sin that we have committed because it's already been paid for. And so we focus on that kind of forensic aspect of the cross. And that is true. This is not to belittle that or diminish that or to say that's not correct. Yeah. It is absolutely correct. Yeah. But there's a deeper element in the cross. Wow. He didn't just die for your sin. Mm. He died with your pain. Wow. Wow. With your suffering. The cross means that there is no human suffering that God has not himself experienced. Yeah. What you see on the cross is what Jürgen Moltmann would call the suffering God. Wow. I'm not just going to sit back and watch. I'm going to take the plunge. Yeah. And that's what the prophet Isaiah said he would do, didn't he? Yeah. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. What Isaiah prophesied was of his suffering. He's not ashamed to call you family. That is the Jesus that the refugees in Afghanistan need to see right now. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That is the Jesus yeah. that the victims in Haiti need to see right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's the Jesus that the world needs to see right now. That's the Jesus who needed to emerge in the midst of the pandemic, but we didn't see him. Wow. We still haven't seen him.
That's the Jesus. And most of us feel like Moses. I I want to connect. I want to be there. I want to support. I want to do something. But I don't know what to do. And so we go out to the wilderness and we just live there for 40 years and we find a new way of life and we just get comfortable in our privilege. And we become sympathizers and not empathizers. The gospel of kin. Do you know what it would mean for us as the body of Christ to preach the gospel of kin to the displaced refugees in Afghanistan right now? 30,000 are fleeing the country every day. To the women of Afghanistan who in one moment lost their freedom, their future, their hopes, their dreams. How many of them are becoming hopeless? How many of them will commit suicide? How many of them will turn to addictive behaviors and the loss of hope? How many of them will be persecuted and even killed and raped? How about the people of Haiti? 2,207 deaths to date and 354 missing persons. Which means we could see 2,500 deaths. 2,500 deaths, we hear that, oh, that's not bad. Yes, that is bad. Not to mention how many thousands of injuries. How many displaced peoples, how many homeless peoples, families that have lost everything, businesses that have collapsed, lost futures. What they don't need is a sympathizing church in America. What they need is an empathizing church. And here's how it all starts. When you think about the people suffering in Afghanistan, the hundreds of thousands of new refugees who have been displaced. When you think about the people in Haiti, some perhaps even still buried alive under the rubble of the earthquake and then the floods coming in on top of the earthquake. Don't think about them as the people of Afghanistan or the people of Haiti. Think about them as your own brothers and sisters or sons and daughters. That's what it means to think of them as God thinks of them. That's my kinfolk. And we move from, I've heard the cries of the people of Afghanistan to I've heard the cries of my people. The gospel of kin, it's incarnational. But the key is to understand that no one of us can preach the gospel of kin by ourselves. Only as the body of Christ can we rise up and communicate the the gospel of kin. It is a corporate response that is needed right now. Not an individual response, but a corporate response that is needed right now. And I'm just going to give us three action steps that we can take. But keep in mind that all three of these action steps are corporate steps. You see, there are many things that happen around the world. And the one thing in preaching the gospel of kin we must be careful not to do is to assume a Messiah complex. 
which means that we now feel responsible to fix all of the ills of the world, and that's how we show the world Jesus. And even Jesus didn't do that. He yeah. went into the pools of Bethesda, and he healed one person. Yeah. Yeah. But he still preached the gospel there. Yeah. But it was very strategic. Yeah. You know me, I don't talk about a lot of current events. Yeah. But the Holy Spirit arrested my heart this week and said, this is a moment. This is a moment where you're going to pause and you're going to step away from what you planned and you're going to begin to preach towards what the gospel, what the body of Christ should be yeah. at this moment. Amen. There's three ways in which the Spirit of God is calling us as a body to respond. And the only way for us to respond in this way is to get, get away from the individual Christian mentality and begin to see ourselves as the body of Christ. Yeah. Because by and large, the only thing that the average Christian thinks about when it comes to the church is what I get from it. I mean, you know, I go there to get me some worship and to get me some presence of God and to get me a good sermon. That's why I don't need the pre-service prayer meeting because, you know, I don't get nothing there. When God said his church was to be called a house of prayer for all nations, which means that our identity is not just to go to get some prayer, but to pray for the nations. But our consumer mentality causes us to neglect the things that would bring us into corporate obedience to the call of Jesus. We neglect our identity as a body because we're only connected to our individual identities. The first response that God is calling for from the body of Christ is to pray. And here's the difference. You pray for Afghanistan by yourself, you pray for Haiti by yourself, it feels meaningless, doesn't it? It feels powerless. It feels, it's like, what am I going to do? Lord, touch Afghanistan. And then you just feel like nothing happened. I'm not doing nothing, nothing, this not doing. But you get the whole body of Christ together to pray for Afghanistan. What we experience in corporate prayer transcends to an exponential degree, the power and the efficacy that we experience in individual prayer. God is not calling us to an individual prayer response. He's calling us to corporate prayer. And the thing we don't understand about prayer is we think that the the only fruit of prayer that we're reaching for is for God to do something. Prayer is about us getting marching orders from God. When you have truly prayed, when we have come together and fully prayed, guess what happens? God tells us what we are to do. We think prayer is us coming to tell God what he's supposed to do. And then we're disappointed because, well, God didn't do nothing. We asked him to do it, but he didn't do it. No, 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 no. Go back to Acts 13. They came, I mean, the entire Greco-Roman world was lost and didn't know Jesus, and they came together to pray for the whole world. And at the end of that prayer meeting, the Holy Spirit said, I need Barnabas and Paul. Set them apart. Lay hands on them. I've got a work for them to do. They set apart Barnabas and Paul. They prayed over them. They laid hands on them. And then the Holy Spirit gave them their marching orders. Here's what you are to do. Oftentimes, we don't get marching orders from the Holy Spirit because we ain't a praying church. We don't know what God's called us to do because we don't have two prayers to rub together. We're so busy coming to get me a word and get me some worship and get me some prayer. And I come to church because I need a word and I need, you ain't getting no word. First and foremost, God is calling us to pray. He's called us to corporate prayer. He's calling us to come together to pray. 
Because whenever God stirs our hearts, it's because most likely He's got a work for us to do that we do not discover until we come together to pray and to seek His face. First and foremost, God calls us to prayer. And we're going to begin this Wednesday night, which is our Wednesday night prayer. It's a monthly prayer gathering. I heard somebody say, if you want to know how popular the pastor, if you want to know how popular the church is, go on a Sunday morning. If you want to know how popular the pastor is, go to the Bible study. But if you want to know how popular Jesus is, go to the prayer meeting. Because nobody goes to the prayer meeting for the pastor or for the church. There's only one reason why you would go to a prayer meeting. Because you want to seek Jesus. And at prayer meeting, I could throw a rock and hit nobody in here. And I could throw a rock on YouTube and hit nobody either. Because ain't nobody got time for prayer. And that's why we continue as sympathizers. That's what enables us to remain isolated, aloof. It's their suffering. It's their problem. Number one, God is calling us to pray. Number two, God is calling us to say. He's calling us to open our mouths and say something. Now, there's two levels to this. The first is individual. The second is corporate. It's just like prayer. Yes, there's an individual call to prayer that you will experience in the context of our corporate expression of prayer. That will empower you in your individual prayer. It's the same thing with say. If you just think of it by yourself, the best you and I can do as individuals is just put up a Facebook message. Pray for Afghanistan. And doesn't that just feel empty? Pray for Haiti. Pray for Afghanistan, and you just say it on Facebook, and it just feels like that's all I can do. It almost feels like an obligatory thing to just put it out there and just say, all right, I said it, but I still feel like there's something I long to do, and I don't know what it is, and if I just knew what to do, I would love to say something in the context of doing something. But first and foremost, when when, when I feel like God is saying he's calling us to say He's calling us primarily to preach the gospel of kinship. As a body, the statement that we make as a body is that we we preach the gospel of kin by the way we live, by the way we respond collectively. Jesus said it in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, Hmm. that you love one another that you're committed to one another, your connection with, listen, we preach the gospel of kin by the way we act to one another. And by the way we come together or don't come together. We can preach this consumerist gospel of sin that's all about, you know, calling out everybody, or we can preach the gospel of kin in the way we respond to one another first and foremost, in the way we gather to seek the face of God, and in the way we respond as a community, the statement we make as a community in response to what's happening in the world. And out of that comes the empowerment to put out a message on Facebook, to say something on Facebook, because you're not just an individual. You speak from the midst of a community that preaches the gospel of kin. And now your individual voice is added to the millions of voices across the country who are right now preaching the gospel of kin and saying, we 
are with you. We care. We say something by the way we corporately interact. And do you know what? If we come together to pray on Wednesday night and we seek the face of God, that's preaching the gospel of kin. That makes a statement. That makes a statement to be able to just put out a little video and say, here's what happened Wednesday night when we gathered to pray for Haiti and Afghanistan. That's a statement. The place was packed out. Why? Because we're preaching the gospel of kin. Pray, say, and then number three, pay. I know I wasn't going to get no amens to that one. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. But what the Lord put on my heart is that we as a community got to put our money where our mouth is. We're not just going to make a statement and we're not just going to pray and, and ask God to do something. God put it in my heart this week that we're going to make a statement as a body that this gospel of kin that we preach is not simply a statement that we make and it's not just that we come together to love one another, but we're actually going to do something tangible. But here's the key. I'm not, ask, I'm not taking a special offering for this. We've already taken so many special offerings and y'all have given faithfully in your tithes and offerings and you've given to the building fund and we've raised all this money. We're going to give this out of our church budget. And I, I'm thankful to announce to you this morning that I've met with our elders and trustees and we have unanimously agreed to give $25,000 towards the effort to reach displaced refugees in Afghanistan, to rescue displaced refugees in Afghanistan, and we're giving another $25,000 toward the relief effort in Haiti. And I want to say something, that this is, this is not the church giving, this, this is you guys giving. All of your faithful giving has made this possible. If you are a giver, if you are a tither, if you have given to this house, you have given to this offering. You have already done it. And we've done research and we found two organizations that are faith-based Christian, strongly evangelical, and making a difference that highly effective on the ground in both of those areas. The first is Convoy of Hope, working in Haiti, and the second is World Relief, that is working with ref displaced refugees in Afghanistan. And so we're going to give that gift of $50,000. It just makes a statement. It makes a statement. The gospel of kin is a statement. It's not just an assertion. But behind it, it's not an obligation. It's not something that we do to assuage our corporate guilt. It starts with us empathizing with God. Because the thing that we must understand is that if we try to empathize with the world directly, it's going to just drown us and kill us. No one can bear the sorrows of the world, except Jesus Christ himself. But you know who we can empathize with? We can empathize with God. And when we begin to empathize with God, we begin to enter into his suffering for the world. We begin to suffer with him. We begin to hear the spirit of God's cries when he says, I've heard the cries of my people in Afghanistan. 
I've heard the cries of my people in Haiti. And our hearts open and say, God, what would you have us to do? That's where we've been this this week as a leadership team. That's where the staff has been. This originated with a staff member just saying, we got to do something. We got to say something. We got to stop. We got to pause. That was the beginning of it. That's what God has been stirring in our hearts as a leadership team, but he's calling us as a church church, to come together around this. Say, God, we feel you. We hear you. That if the church could respond to God and say, God, we've seen the cry of your heart for the people of Afghanistan and Haiti. We've heard your cries, your desperation that you're looking for men and women, that you're looking for the body of Christ to rise up yeah, right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Lord, we've come to join you. Amen, yes. We've come, we know the sorrows of the one who knows our sorrows. Yeah. We yeah. have empathized with the one who has empathized with us. Surely he has borne our griefs. God, we say now we're ready to join you in your griefs. Yeah. Yeah. We'll carry Amen. your burden. Amen. And Jesus says, Amen. take my yoke upon you yes. and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The gospel of kin. The gospel of kin. Jesus preached the gospel of kin before he preached the gospel of sin, didn't he? Before he confronted anyone with their sins, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cleansed the leper. You know what he was saying? I've borne your griefs. The woman caught in adultery. You know what he did? He drove away all of her accusers, and then he preached the gospel of sin. Now go and sin no more. First, he presented himself as kin. And if the church would learn to do this, start with kin, not with sin. Maybe you're listening today. Maybe you're watching today. Maybe you're here today, and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And maybe all you know of him is that he comes to confront your sin. Let me tell you something. He wants you to know that he is your kin. He wants you to know that he knows your pain and your sorrows. He wants you to know that he sees where you are and he loves you. And all he's saying is, come to me and let me heal you. Yes, we'll deal with your sins later. We're going to talk to him. But God says, just don't be afraid. Come and follow me. And I'll make you a fisher of men. Bow your heads and close your eyes. Somebody come to the keyboard. Father, I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would open our ears as we open our hearts. That you would stir us And that as a community, we would begin to preach the gospel of kin, not simply with words, but with our actions, with our lifestyle. Lord, we can only preach the gospel of kin as a community if we learn how to be a community. Deliver us from the individualization, the consumer mentality that says this is all about me and what I can get. Teach us to empathize with you. We open our hearts to you. I'm going to invite my wife.